Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, our text will be verses 23 to 30. This is really coming to an end uh, concerning the crucifixion of our Lord. It's going to be in our passage today that he bows his head and he gave up his spirit, or he gives up his spirit rather. He is going to accomplish his work. He's going to say those magnificent words, it is finished or it is paid. It is this event here that is purchasing the redemption of all of God's people. It is an event that we look back on and, and, and herein lies our redemption. It, this, is, this is where the forgiveness of sins had taken place. This is where the Lord had satisfied the justice of his father against sinners such as us. This is the climax of all human history, as we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. Everything converges here. When you look back at the, the Old Testament itself, and we wonder, you know, how, how was it that the Old Testament saints were saved, or were, were they converted, all of that? They were saved by grace through faith, just as we are. And who, how did their sins get atoned for? It was atoned for by Christ. Christ's death atoned for not just those who came after him, but for everyone who was before him. All, all of God's people, this, this was all converging here. All of their redemption. All of their salvation coming here to this passage, to this event, to this, this giving of himself of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we've talked about in the past couple of weeks, as John is really recording for us much of what has taken place at the, at, the, at the cross, you know, it's interesting when you look back, it's really John who is the eyewitness to these things. The rest of the disciples had left. They had ran off. John himself is an eyewitness of this. And yet he doesn't give us all of the, the details necessarily of the sufferings of Christ. He doesn't tell us all the, the graphic uh, suffering and all of that like Psalm 22 would tell us. He doesn't tell us any of that. The main thing that John seems to be doing is pointing us to this understanding or rather pointing his readers to understand as he is explaining what's happening at the cross, he is tying it back into the Old Testament passages of Scripture to say that this one was not just a regular guy. He wasn't just a regular criminal who was dying. This man is the one who fulfilled all of what we were anticipating. Everything that was said prior is pointing to him. And that's why he brings those, those truths out, especially from Psalm 22, which we have the great suffering of our Lord, alluding to other passages of Scripture like in Isaiah, all of that. This is to explain to his readers in the days that they're going out and they're preaching the risen Christ like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. Everything that was happening here was pointing to him. They didn't, they didn't need all the graphic details of a crucifixion because they were aware of it. What they needed to know was that the one who was dying was propitiating their sins to the Almighty. That's why John doesn't give us all of those details. He has something else in mind. 
that these things are written that you may believe. You have Jesus that says in John chapter 5 to the religious leaders that, that, that the Old Testament, the scriptures that they, were, that they were relying so much on, these testify of me. When you go to Luke, and, and after Jesus has, has risen from the dead and he's on the road to Emmaus, he explains to the disciples that are there from the law and the prophets and all of that, that everything that was taking place was foretold. He's fulfilling scripture. And that's the thing that John wants us to understand. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. And what, do, what then does that do? Well, one, probably from the outset, it helps us to understand that Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. That Jesus is not just someone who decided to try to follow God to the end of his life. And he gave us such a great example of what it is to, to follow God till, till our death, as some would believe. And we can sum this up that the suffering and the death of Christ Jesus is by the sovereign will and plan of God. And John is bringing that out to say these things are taking place because it was written beforehand. That tells us of the intentionality of what is happening here. This is by God's predetermined plan. As, as he says in Acts chapter 4. Everything that was needed to be done in order to satisfy God's righteous indignation against sin is being done now, here, in, in this passage before us. Herein is where our Lord purchased us. Herein is where our Lord has tore down the wall of partition and he's, he's brought all people together to make a new family of God. There is, there is a lot of pain and suffering throughout this passage, of course, but yet there is also reason for us to rejoice in what is happening in this passage today. So as we look to this passage, we're going to look at a number of different things that are, that are going on. But let us rejoice before our Lord that he gave himself willingly and that what we're reading today is what was absolutely needed. It was a necessity that this take place in order that we may be forgiven and come before our Lord in a favorable way. Let's stand if you would. And we are reading chapter 19, verses 23 to 30. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. 
A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are indeed on holy ground here. We recognize that that this is a passage of Scripture that is familiar to us, but, oh, Father, let it not be that familiar that we are not affected by it. Teach us what we are to understand from this portion of your word. Allow it to, to cultivate within us such a love and appreciation for our Lord and all that he accomplished for us. Be glorified today in your people and bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last Lord's Day, we remember that they had handed him over to be crucified and that Pilate had made a sign. He had made the sign in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew of really the charge of why he was dying, why he was being crucified. It would be paraded before the prisoner as they were being led to their execution. And our Lord said, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. The Jews had went to Pilate and said, don't write this, but write that he said he was. And, of course, Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. Now, the same kind of scenario is going to be happening here in this passage That unbeknownst to Pilate, but by the sovereign hand of God, he has written this as the charge, and yet it is absolutely true of the identity of the one who is being crucified. He is the king of the Jews. Now, why would Pilate write that? Other than the fact that God had predetermined that it was going to be this way. And as you look at the soldiers here, these soldiers, they're just doing their job. What they're required to do, and yet unbeknownst to them, but by the sovereign hand of God, they are fulfilling scripture right at the foot of the cross. And John wants us to know that. John wants us to understand that this is exactly what the scripture had foretold. John is wanting his readers to understand this. This is, this is exactly, if you look at it this way, this is, this is a time in which the gospel is going forth. This is a time in which they are preaching Christ and they're going to their fellow countrymen and they're saying that, yes, the Old Testament, we, or we have the First Testament, as some would say, or the scriptures, the law, that this is foretold of what this man has endured. Well, how do you know that? How can you prove that? Well, look at what happened here, and then let's go back and look here. This is fulfilling this. He is showing how Christ himself is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, especially in reference to the suffering servant, the suffering of the Messiah King, the suffering of the anointed one. That has a great bearing on on even the message that they're giving to their fellow countrymen. Everything that you've been reading is pointing to this man. And like I said... This is all by the sovereign hand of God, that everything is taking place exactly as it's supposed to. The soldiers, unbeknownst to them, are fulfilling Scripture. 
But this is, this is the power of God set before us. This is the power of God put on display. And this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us encouragement to know that everything that is happening is by the predetermined plan of God. He is in a, a helpless victim here. He's not a victim of circumstance. He's none of this. He is fulfilling exactly what was foretold by David, which was almost a thousand years earlier when David penned Psalm 22. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, also the tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. Now, you got very various ideas as to what particular parts that they're talking about here. You have the outer garment, you have the tunic, you have perhaps a sash, you have the sandals, some kind of a headdress that our Lord wore, maybe a prayer shawl. It really doesn't matter exactly what pieces of clothing that we're talking about here. As some throughout church history, especially one of the early church fathers, Origen, had looked at the, the tunic that was, that was seamless, that was woven in one piece as some kind of a metaphor for something of the righteousness of Christ or whatever. We don't want to go that far. We don't want to focus too much on the clothing. We just want to know that what's happening here is happening by the fulfillment of Scripture. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots to decide, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know that John is quoting from Psalm 22 here. Just as the other gospel writers are referencing Psalm 22. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. When John is talking about the fulfilled scripture here, it's from Psalm 22. When Jesus is saying that I thirst, when you go back to Psalm 22, you're, you're seeing you know, that his, his tongue cleaves to his mouth. He's thirsty. When Jesus says it is finished, it's referencing back to Psalm 22. This is the point of what the writers of scripture are wanting us to understand, especially John. The one who is suffering, the one who is dying, is indeed the one that was foretold of. They divided his garments. And yet, that was exactly what the scripture says. Let's go back to Psalm 22. As a number of theologians would say that perhaps what was on Jesus' mind when he was hanging on the cross is really summed up for us much, at least much of that in Psalm 22. We read these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord praise him. All you descendants of Jacob glorify him. And stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor poured the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship all those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. All of that. As, as the religious leaders are around the the cross, as the other gospel writers record, that's exactly what they're saying. Commit yourself to the Lord. If he delights in you, maybe he'll save you. And yet, in, in, unbeknownst to them, the very things that they're saying is fulfilling of Scripture. It really centers much on Psalm 22. Our Lord is the one who suffers. Our Lord is the one who has taken the place of others. So as the soldiers are there, they're doing exactly what God had decreed that they would do. Which then implies everything that is happening is happening and going, uh, happening by the sovereign hand of God. Everything's going according to plan. They strip him naked. Whenever they crucified someone, they would not only take off their outer garments and their tunic, they would take the loincloth, they would take everything just to further their humiliation on the cross. And as we've talked about, we mentioned last week, that the fact that our Lord was humiliated in such a way that he himself is also once again picturing the curse that he is redeeming his people from. Because in the garden, before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked and they were not ashamed until they sinned. And then they knew they were naked. And then they sought to cover themselves to hide their shame. 
And our Lord was exposed on the cross, bearing that shame. And as one theologian said, he bore that shame so that none of us would have to. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, all of that. So therefore, the soldiers and everything that they were doing did not recognize God's sovereign hand in all of this. But we do. We can see it. We understand because the scripture has given us a clear understanding of these things through the writers like John. This is part of God's plan. This is why Christ had come into the world to fulfill the scripture, to demonstrate who he was, to show his identity. Now, here's the amazing thing that our Lord does. He's on the cross, and he is indeed suffering greatly, not only because of the physical agony that we read of in Psalm 22, but in just a few short moments, he's going to endure even greater agony than none of us could even fathom. But while he's there, while he's trying to pull himself up in order to breathe, he sees his mom, and he sees John. He sees his mother, he sees his mother's sister, which is perhaps Salome, as the other gospel writers record, Salome being the mother of James and John. He sees Mary, the wife of Clopas. Many theologians would say that perhaps she is the mother of James the, Le- James the Less and Joseph, and then Mary Magdalene. And here's the amazing thing of our Lord. That everything that he is doing and everything that he is accomplishing is for the redemption of his people in order that forgiveness would be granted to them. That grace would be extended to them. That the spirit of God will be sent to them in order to minister to them. To sanctify them, to prepare them. And yet even in his moments of dying, that's exactly what he's doing. He's demonstrating that whole thing even while on the cross. When he looks up and he sees his mom. You know, he doesn't call her mother. He says woman. And perhaps Jesus was trying to, even in the time of his suffering as his mother is watching him die. Perhaps trying to spare her even more pain. Instead of acknowledging her as mother, instead he says woman. Which also helps perhaps Mary to see that there's a difference in relationship now. Yes, that is her son, but that is her Lord. And that's her Lord that is dying for her, dying for her sins. He says to her, woman, behold your son. As John is there next to her, and he says to the disciple, Behold your mother. And we read that from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus is still ministering while he's on the cross, not just to his mom. The other gospel writers tell us of the thief that was next to Jesus, he didn't have to tell him anything. 
But instead, what he tells the thief on the cross is today, I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. He even ministers even to the the soldiers that are there in one sense because he prays to the Father and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do not hold this charge against them because they don't understand. Our sovereign Lord is still ministering from the cross. And what we read of here in John is he's ministering to his mom and the disciple whom he loved. He is saying for his mom to go with John. John, take care of my mom. Now the question has to come though is why is it that Jesus being the eldest son of Mary, why did he entrust his mom to John? Why not to his other brothers? Surely if Jesus is going to to depart, that one of his other brothers would have been there in order to take care of his mom. Take care of their mom. Why did he not entrust his mom to them? It probably wasn't that they were incapable of taking care of Mary. But most likely it was because his brothers did not have faith in him. At least at this point. And so instead of perhaps sending Mary as Jesus is going to be in the the grave for three days. Instead of sending Mary to one of his brothers and one of his brothers to only further along her pain and suffering. Mom, you know... He did. He brought this on himself because he kept claiming these things and et cetera, et cetera. Instead, stay with John because John's going to be the one, too, who is going to help encourage you. And again, if, you, if we remember this, what did Simeon say to her in Luke? Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, this is when they come to present Jesus at the temple and offer sacrifice according to the law. This is Simeon, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be oppressed, opposed, a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. He says to Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul. What was he referring to? But most likely exactly what's happening here is that Mary is having to endure watching her son in such agony and such pain. So instead of referring to her as mom, mother, he addresses her as woman. He's not being disrespectful to her, but he is demonstrating that there is a change of relationship in one sense. He is her Lord. He is her Savior. He is her Redeemer. And so for her to be able to look at him in that way would perhaps spare her the pain and the suffering of a mom watching her son die, but to understand fuller that this is the Lord, this is the sovereign, this is the Savior. 
And by doing so, making provision for Mary, making sure that she is taken care of, he's also fulfilling to the very end the law, which is honoring your father and your mother, down to the last breath. And perhaps he's also establishing the different relationships of family. What I mean by that is one theologian says this, when Jesus commends Mary to John, he bypasses his own unbelieving brethren and leaves her to the care of the beloved disciple instead. Is this accidental? Is it, is it only because John happened to be near the cross at this moment? It is hard to think so. Rather, we sense that the Lord is here bringing into existence a new family based on his atonement. And as Mariano de Ganges writes, Our Lord brings into being the brotherhood of believers. He fashions the fellowship of the household of faith. This is the new society, which is not segregated according to race or nationality. It is not predicated upon social standing or economic power. It consists of those whose faith meets at the cross and whose experience of forgiveness flows from the cross. This is our fellowship if we are truly Christ's followers. We should conduct ourselves as those who are members of it by caring for and loving one another. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's by James Montgomery Boyce. Perhaps that's what Jesus is doing. The familial relationships that are just segregated to individual families Something else is happening here. On account of his atonement, on account of what he is doing, as what we read of in Ephesians chapter 2, he's tearing down the wall of partition with separated, and he's bringing all in to one family, one body, which is the church. Which then on in the New Testament is referred to as the household of faith, the household of God. We are indeed a family. We are of the Children of Abraham is what we read of in the scripture. We are a faith family being brought together by this act that he, is, that he is performing here. And so we do good unto one another, especially of those of the household of faith. Jesus had perhaps hinted at that even earlier as we read of in the gospel of Matthew. For example, Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is teaching and they come and they say, Hey, your mom and your brothers are out here. They want to talk to you. Who is my mother and my brothers? And he passes over the crowd and says, All who do the will of my father, these are my mother and my brothers. Perhaps he is establishing that in, in what he, in, even though he's, he's making provision for his mom to establish that, that kind of a faith relationship, that faith family relationship while taking care of his mom. It is amazing to think in what great agony that we can't even fathom of being crucified that he's still ministering from the cross. Now John says this, that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. John doesn't record for us what the other gospel writers do, that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he doesn't express uh, what's going on about the, when the sky had grown dark and this is when Jesus had cried out. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us any of that. 
But between the time that he is telling John to take care of his mom until the time that he is saying, I am thirsty, it is in between this particular amount of time that Jesus is having the wrath of God poured out upon him. When you take all the gospel uh, accounts together, you have those, of course, that we're familiar with, those seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And those first three being said before God had poured out his wrath. When you put them in order, the first he says is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The second thing he says from the cross is, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The third thing he says from the cross is, dear woman, here is your son, here is your mother. The fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is at this point in the whole narrative of Jesus' crucifixion, it is at this point that redemption is being made on behalf of his people because it's not the physical agony here that is atoning for our sins. It is the Father who is pouring out wrath upon his only Son. What does it look like? I have no idea. I don't think any one of us could ever fathom what he was suffering on the cross. When the Father pours out His wrath, what agony and suffering that He endured, what does it look like? It was apparently not visible to the eye because nobody else is being able to understand it to see it. The only thing that we do read of, well, and a number of things rather, is in Romans chapter 3, for example, we read this beginning in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. It is a propitiatory sacrifice, one that satisfies. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. His justice is the idea here. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The thing that Paul is explaining to us is, is, what, is what's actually happening on the cross, that he is being made a sacrifice, a propitiation. And the idea of him satisfying uh, the justice of God and being a propitiatory sacrifice, the idea is, is that he diverts the wrath of God upon himself off of the sinner. And he takes it and he satisfies God's justice. He is our propitiation, as Paul says. This is what he is accomplishing on the cross. That everything that you have done and everything that I have done, everything that all the people of God have done throughout the history of the church, the history of, of redemption, everything is converging upon him so that he who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. The one who never sinned is punished as if he was. It wasn't that he became a sinner, it was that sin was imputed to him, as if he had done it. 
yours and mine. Now, you think of this, that any one particular individual is going to be punished in hell for exactly what they did and only what they did. So they're not, they're not having to receive punishment only for themselves to whatever degree that's going to be. In addition to somebody else, it's just them. But you think of all the people of God. And Christ is bearing their punishment. I would go so far to say this. There will never be anybody in hell that will ever suffer as much as Christ did on the cross. Because he wasn't being punished for one person. He was being punished for all that the Father had given to him. The very pains of hell. Christ enduring. Well, we don't see no fire, right? We think of hell, we think of fire. You're going to burn forever. We hear all that a lot hear that in our culture you're going to burn forever in hell or whatever you know something that really helps us to understand maybe a little bit more of the agony and the punishment of hell is 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 knowing that christ himself endured that wrath of god upon himself while on the cross so here's some things to think about when it comes to hell when you look at the descriptions of heaven that are given in the scripture and you see all the beauty that is, that is being conveyed, trying to help us to understand about heaven. You got the gates of pearl and the streets of, of gold that are transparent and you got all these different jewels that are, description, uh, that are used as a description in, in the book of Revelation, for example. But none of those things compares to the reality of heaven. For the reality of heaven is far greater than the symbols that are being used so that we can try to understand the beauty and the majesty of heaven. So that when you go to the descriptions of hell, on the flip side, what is one of the worst things that we could think of is burning forever and never, and it never being uh, undone. We're never consumed. It never stops. And Jesus used the trash, the, the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, which was Gehenna, the, where they would burn their trash. He was making an, a, a comparison. But the reality of hell is far greater than the symbol that's being used. And that reality of hell is what Christ himself endured to a degree that we could never fathom. An innocent one. The godly suffering for the ungodly. At this moment. Is when you think of all. From all history. From, from all existence. In, in eternity past. You have the father and the son. The Holy Spirit with that perfect communion. And perfect fellowship. Only, only knowing the love of, of each, each member of the triune God. And at this point, in order to redeem his people, the Son of God endures something that he 
never experienced in his entire existence, even in eternity past, which is the wrath of his father. But he did it willingly. And he suffered on the cross for a total of six hours. Perhaps it was the last three hours that he endured the wrath of God. And because he is so precious, because he is so valuable, because he is the God-man, it wouldn't have mattered, as one theologian said, if he had suffered for an hour. If he had suffered for one minute, it would have been enough. But instead, he suffers for a number of hours, satisfying his father's wrath. And thereby, in the place of the sinner, he purchases them from the marketplace of sin, if you will. I'm paying for them, and they're mine. After Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God, which, again, the other writers allude to Psalm 22 as we read, to express that very thing, that very reality. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, everything was done, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Now, if we go back to Psalm 22, my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. He's thirsty. <laughs> and actually, when you go to Psalm 69, Psalm 69 says that very thing that they, that, that they gave me sour wine to drink. They gave me vinegar to drink. A fulfillment of Psalm 69 right here as well. Now I want you to think of this. A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. This is an interesting act of kindness on the part of the, the soldiers that were there. But you think of the soldiers that were there, they're hearing everything that's happening too. They're hearing him pray for them. They're hearing him telling the man next to him that he's going to be in paradise. They hear him talk to his mom. They hear him crying out to the Lord. They're hearing all of that. And then he says, I'm thirsty. So he takes the jar of sour wine. Now, when you go to the other gospels and they try to give him wine mixed with myrrh, he doesn't take it. And why doesn't he take it? Because it would have, it would have diluted the pain that he was going to endure. And on that note, he says, no. Why? Because he's going to endure it all. He's going to take it all. But when it comes time that everything is done, he doesn't ask for the wine mixed with myrrh anymore. He just wants something, the sour wine. Maybe it was because, as, as some people say, maybe it was because he's getting ready to cry out that it is finished. Maybe he just needed something to drink for that reason. I don't think so. I think everything here is very purposeful and very intentional that here again, he's fulfilling scripture to the very end. So they take the sour wine, they put it on a branch of hyssop and they put it up to his mouth. You've got to realize too that Jesus is probably only a few feet off the ground. We think of him being way high up in the air and they would have to have a very long spear or something to get to his mouth. And that's not the case. If you had at least maybe a three-foot little reed or something like that from this hyssop branch and you could hold it up to his mouth, that's all he needed. Brings it up to his mouth. 
And when he had received the sour wine, then he says, it is finished. He says, it is paid. Now, we remember this from, from previous times, that he is saying this Greek word, tetelestai. And it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means that what is being accomplished here, the, the effects of it continue infinitely into the future. And that's what he's saying. He's saying these words in the perfect tense. It's all accomplished and everybody is secured. No matter what point in history that they come, they're secured. And that's me and you. And this is ending on a note of triumph. Just as he says in Psalm 22, I'm going to make your name great in the great assembly. What's he talking about? He's talking about how the gospel is going to go out and the, the great assembly is going to praise the Lord on account of him. And they're going to say he has performed it. Or he has done it. Or actually as this Hebrew word can be translated, it is finished. And he alludes to that. He says that, that the, those very words of Psalm 22, Jesus ends his work by saying it is finished. And that means paid in full. And that's why when you think about everything that he endured, and you think about all the suffering and the pain, and you think about how the Father's wrath is satisfied in Him, that everything is accomplished. We need to let this sink in our minds that He said, it is finished, it is paid. There is nothing more to do. Nothing. You can do nothing to further along your salvation. It would be an insult to try. Because He accomplished it all. There's no works of righteousness that we must do. Baptism isn't part of it. In the gospel, the gospel is everything that we receive. And the gospel says, he paid it in full. And just as Alistair Begg says, but not just to the thief on the cross, he says to every one of us, you can come. And you can come because he paid it all. And you know what he asks of us as far as what we're talking about with saving faith? Believe. Believe. What defines saving faith? That we understand the reality of what has happened. We agree that it's true. And here's the thing that differentiates saving faith from perhaps just mere professing faith or just assenting to the facts of the gospel, saving faith has that last element in it that as you understand everything that Christ had done for you and you believe that it's true, that little third aspect of it is, I believe it was for me. And when you believe that it was for you, then that is the essence of saving faith. This is being accomplished for me. And there's nothing else I need to do. So that, as we've been talking about, because I want us to truly understand it, because we can really beat ourselves up bad. We can beat ourselves up bad because we recognize 
just how, just, just how much we fall short. How much we don't do. But Christ did enough. That's what you got to go back to. I don't do this enough. I don't do that enough. And we all struggle with that. But the good news of the gospel is, is that he did. He did it all. There's nothing more you can do. The Christian life is forward and back, forward and back. It's a constant struggle to continually move forward. And when you get down on yourself because you messed up badly or whatever the case is, we don't think to ourselves, oh, Lord, I must not be saved because of what I did. Yes, we run back to the cross, but we remember this. Oh, Lord, I know I'm saved because I know Christ died for me. That's where we go. And that's the good news. The good news is not dependent upon us. It's all on him. And he says it's paid. And that's stamped, paid in full. And the effects of what he has accomplished here continue infinitely into the future until the last of God's people is brought together and then we have the consummation of all things. Jesus paid it all, as the song says. That's why he says, all to him I owe. Everything that I ever hoped to be is because of him. And that's the way it is for all of us. Yes, we are to grow in holiness. And that's the thing about it. When you talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ, which brings our justification. Because that, that's, uh, that's another thing too. Well, does that mean that it's a free for all? No, not at all. Because the grace of God that is extended to you is not just for your justification. It's not just to bring you into a right standing with God. But the great blessing of, of salvation, of, of, of the gospel, is not only the imputed righteousness of Christ by which you are counted not guilty on account of his perfection, but also the righteousness that is produced in you through sanctification by the Spirit of God. These blessings will come to you because the Spirit of God is bringing it about in you. And so we work out what the Spirit is doing in us, and it's all that work of God. But dear friends, recognize this, that Jesus is dying on the cross here and he's dying for those that deserted him. He's dying for Peter who had denied him and that he would bring back and restore. He's dying for Thomas who wouldn't believe that he even rose from the dead until he saw him. He's dying for all the disciples that were far from being perfect men. But think of how greatly they were used by the Lord. Ordinary men. Ordinary persons. Spreading the gospel. And God doing a mighty work through them. That's the power of our God. All hinging on what Christ has accomplished. When you feel beaten and down. Downtrodden because of 
how things are going in your own life or how you have failed in whatever aspect of your Christian faith, we run back to Christ. That's where we go. And we start anew. I'm so thankful for the passages of like Romans 7. Because Romans 7 is a great description of the reality of the Christian life. I do the things I don't want to do. And the things I want to, I don't. All of us here, being genuine believers, have a great desire to serve God. Have a great desire to be in the word of God and to learn and to to grow and to share the gospel and, and all of this sort of thing. And then we find ourselves not doing the very thing that we wanted to, but doing something else. But where does Paul go with that? O wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ. That's where we go, dear friends, because he paid it all. Let's remember that. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that Christ did. He was willing to do all that he did. He bows his head and he gives up his spirit because he had accomplished it all. And again, he done the very thing that he said he would do. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down himself. And he did that all the way to the end. Thank you for his life, for his perfection that is credited to us as if we had done it. Thank you that we are clothed in his righteousness and not being found with the righteousness of our own, which is filthy rags. Thank you for his death, that he satisfies your justice against us individually. Thank you so much for his finished work. May our hearts yearn even more to please him, to give him thanks, to honor him out of joy, knowing what he has done for us. Oh, Father, do a mighty work within our hearts. Use us to further your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to do what's right, to walk worthy. May Christ be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.